The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. All right, I'm, I'm going to get started early this evening, so I want to ask you to turn your Bibles, if you would, to Second Peter chapter 1. And here we're discussing living by maturing, which is the growth process in the Christian life. And I'd like for us to begin reading in Second Peter chapter 1 at verse number 1. And uh, I think your, your lesson sheet says down to verse number 10, but we're going to read through verse number 11. Second Peter chapter 1 and verse number 1. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness. And to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind, and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore, the rather brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly, into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, if we wanted to sum up those 11 verses, we could sum them up into one word, one doctrine of the Word of God, and that is the doctrine of sanctification. This is the way that the Spirit molds us into the image of Christ, and that is the goal of the Christian life. It is Christ-likeness that is expressed by the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, where he wrote about the fruits of the Spirit. And there he said, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, against such there is no law. And all of those fruits of the Spirit are possible for every believer. The, law, the love, the joy, the peace, the long-suffering, and so on. All of those are possible for us as the children of God, but we have to be very mindful of this, that they cannot be obtained without effort. And so what we must do, we have to be very diligent, as we see that word here, diligent to work at these things through prayer, through study, through faithful attendance at worship services, and all of those things will work together to help the believer to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we look at this passage, Peter gives us another look at the fruits of the Spirit. 
And rather than dealing with them in light of the Spirit's work in us and accomplishing them, what he does, he takes us to a different level as we look at it here, and he brings us to the level of Christian responsibility, that it's our responsibility to obtain these graces. Christians are are not to be passive in this type of sanctification. In verse number 3, Peter emphasized that it's the Holy Spirit that gives us the enabling power for them. The Spirit helps us according to the divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. But then he goes on in verse number 5, and he does use that word diligent, and he says we must be diligent to be actively involved in this process. And maturing is not an option for us as Christians. This is something that God has commanded, and we are to obey this command. Well, in the last lesson, we looked at the first four verses of the chapter, and what we did there was to lay the groundwork for what comes in this next section, where we have, and in these first four verses, we have all the assurances that what comes next can actually be done, that we have been given faith according to verse number 1, We are assured that we can multiply these graces in the knowledge of Christ. That's according to verse number 2. And then in verse number 2, or 3 rather, it says that it's by divine power. And in verse 4, it tells us the power of sanctification flows from the Holy Spirit through the nature that's given to us in regeneration. And of course, regeneration is the new birth. And so we find that right at the inception of regeneration and our conversion to Christ, we are in the position to start our growth. Now, a baby grows by being fed, by getting the right diet. And if that child has been rightly formed without any defects, then it will grow whenever it's given the right food. And I can tell you that the Holy Spirit has never birthed a deformed child. Every one of them is perfect in the divine nature. Now, we do have the human nature that's still in us, but all of these things, the growth process, doesn't work through the human nature. It works through the divine nature that God has implanted in us through regeneration. And that divine nature is perfectly suited to do all the things that God expects for it to do. We can grow spiritually. Now, as you know, the growth process is not completed in this life. We're going to be busy in it all of our lives, and it won't be complete until we reach our glorification in heaven. And that's when the old nature is completely gone. And so we come now to verse number 5. As spiritual babies, which all of us are at first when we come to the faith, we have to be fed. And so we start out with milk. We start with the easy concepts that are in the Word of God. And what we are to do is to keep moving on, keep moving upward, and add spiritual graces over time. So verse number 5 says, And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge. Now this evening we're going to begin by looking at indicators of growth. Now verse number 5 starts what looks like a list. And the last time we said that the list doesn't mean that we work on each of these things one at a time. But all of these things that we see here are in progress at the same time, that we have to work on all of them concurrently because they're interdependent. One doesn't happen without the other. So as one grace increases, so do other graces increase. And then another thing I add to that is that it must be continuous. We call this type of sanctification progressive sanctification. 
As I said, it won't be complete in this life. And so it's the ongoing maintenance of the Christian life or what we might call the tune-up, the daily tune-up of our Christianity. Now, the beginning of verse number 5 says, And beside this, giving all diligence, beside this, giving all diligence. And that is actually the maintenance schedule. Uh, you, you have cars, and you know that a car is always going to be a car, but it's going to be a better car if you carefully maintain it. And if you're a born-again Christian, you're always going to be a Christian, but you're going to be a better Christian if you develop Christ-like characteristics. If you're diligent to do that, if you're careful to maintain your standing in Christ, you will be a better Christian. Now, if you'll skip down to verse number 10 for just a moment, Peter said that if you do these things, that you'll never fall. Well, he's not speaking there of falling from salvation. He's not saying it can be lost. If you're not growing, then it means you're going to lose your salvation. But what he does mean here is the very same thing that Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 27. There he said, But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Now, castaway means useless. It means to be disqualified for service. And that's what can happen to a Christian who isn't careful to maintain, to be diligent to maintain. And we're going to talk more about that as we get down towards the end of this uh, particular part of these lessons on maturing. And then another, still another notation to reinforce the assertion that we have to be involved in the process, that we can't be passive. I'm reminded of a catchphrase that used to be very popular just a few years ago, that preachers were uh, saying things like, well, what you need to do as a Christian is just let go of everything. Just let go and let God. I don't know if you've heard that, that saying before, let go and let God. And the picture that they give is that, well, really all that you need to do is just kind of sit back, let God be in charge. You don't really have to pay too much attention. Sit back and enjoy the ride to heaven. And God has promised that he's going to take care of it all. Well, if that's the truth, then we might very well ask the question, why does the Bible say so much about our perseverance? Why does the Bible say that what you need to do as a Christian is to make your calling and election sure? Why does it actually say, keep yourselves in the love of God? Now, we know you can't do anything to save yourself. You can't really do anything to keep yourself saved. But that does not mean at all that there's nothing for a Christian to do. We can't be passive in this. So this is why Peter begins verse number 5 with diligence. Be diligent to do this. There is work for you to do. Now we also notice that here he shows us that there is a foundation to build on. That we are to add these graces. And the list goes on in the next verses to describe what these graces are. And what is it that we are to add the graces to? Well, he says these things are to be added to your faith. Now if you look at the list... You see virtue, and you see patience, and knowledge, and charity. And you think, well, that's a wonderful thing. That's a great thing for all people to do. I mean, all of us should be this way. You should be kind. Nobody's going to say you shouldn't be kind. Nobody will say you shouldn't love people and live by a high moral standard. Every politician's going to make that a part of his platform. Some of them even use the name of Jesus, as I spoke this morning. And they say, well, this is what people need. We just need to be more like Jesus. We need to do what he did. Well, did you ever wonder why that the same politicians and others that say those kinds of things end up in scandals? And do you wonder why 
that your neighborhood may very well be a dangerous place to be. And that's not because there isn't anybody who wants to be virtuous. And, not, and it's not because you can't ever find anybody who wants to be kind or, or to be good. No, the problem is these people don't have a solid place to add those qualities. That what they're actually doing is building upon a foundation of their depraved nature. They're, they're building on quicksand. And so the very first temptation that comes along, that becomes the ruination of their house. Jesus spoke to that in Matthew 7 when he talked about the foolish man who builds his spiritual house upon a bad foundation. And then when the rains come, it sweeps all the good that he does away. So where are we to build? Well, 1 Corinthians 11, 3.11 uh, 3, gives us an answer to that. It says, For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And so the foundation is Christ, and without Him, these spiritual graces amount to nothing. So when Peter says to add to your faith, he's speaking of that sincere trust that you have in Christ. He's speaking of the true conviction that there is no one but Christ that we can go to. Now Paul states it in another way in Philippians chapter 1. He said, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ and of the glory and praise of God. And so faith in Christ is to have the righteousness, the imputed righteousness of Christ, that you build your faith upon the foundation of righteousness. And that can only be found in Christ. That's the only way spiritual graces are possible to maintain. And then we also notice, and this is a persistent theme throughout Scripture, that the reason that we do this is for this highest purpose. And that is for the glory of God. All of it's designed. Your life is designed for the glory of God. Well, now that we have been saved by faith and we have the righteousness of Christ, it's time for us to grow in that faith. And so what are the indicators that, that growth has taken place? Well, I think that Peter starts very well here. Not that he needs my approval, but he does start very well. I think this would be a great indicator that growth has begun he says, add to your faith virtue. What does he mean by virtue? Add to your faith virtue. Well, I've tried to simplify these different graces that we have here. So we'll say this, that virtue means to choose right over wrong. To choose right over wrong. And actually, there are many of us that are hit hard when we, when we come to this because we're just absolutely convinced that we are mature Christians. Oh, we've grown in our faith. We, we have no trouble with this. And so we have to think, well, who is it then that is an immature Christian? How do you characterize someone who is immature? Well, that's somebody who's always struggling with doing the right thing. And not only does he struggle, but he's often making very bad choices in his life. He just easily gets caught in many different temptations. A few weeks ago, Brother Dalton was preaching on Matthew chapter 5 about letting your light shine for Christ. And he mentioned that our light can never be put out, but we can certainly obscure it by the bad choices that we make. And so we make a lot of bad choices that make it hard, if not nigh impossible, for people to tell that we are even Christians. Now let me just mention this. Uh, you know that I don't preach a lot about dress issues. I don't preach much about appearances. And that's because when I became the pastor, I, I was determined that I didn't want to have a ministry that was encumbered with multitudes of rules that we make, and many of them are personal choices by which people will judge others. 
Maybe I've gone too far the other way. But the, the point of that is that you can't actually see into a person's heart to tell how devoted that they are to Christ. You don't know their level of dedication. And Brother Wong kind of drove that point home in his message on spirituality when he said that you can't really judge the spirituality of a person's heart by how active they are doing things like knocking on doors and filling out their reports. That performance-based Christianity is not really an indication of the heart. And that's something that we need to remember. But we also need to recognize this, that there does come a time when a person's habits can be so far off track that you can see that they're not progressing. When their clothing and their personal appearances are accompanied by a sloppy attitude towards the things of Christ, then there's something that's gone wrong in that person's growth. Well, some will say then, well, it's great, the church doesn't have any rules. They've thrown out all the rules, and so I'm free to take this thing to the max so I can express my Christian liberty. And the person who says that has completely missed the point of what it's all about. What we're trying to say is, you don't need a rule for sanctification because here is something that you have been commanded. You don't need me to make a list of rules for your sanctification. I don't need to tack those up on the wall for you because the Scripture says, this is your responsibility. You are to grow and you are to be sanctified. And so that means that you need to be diligent and wise in your choices. You need to watch what you do. You need to be able to apply spiritual principles. In other words, the, the preacher can't make you sanctified. It's your job through the power of the Holy Spirit that lives in you to be different from what you were. And so if you continue to dress like the world and to talk like the world and visit all the world's places, then we can just say, then you aren't sanctified. And the light of Christ is obscured in many Christians because... They've just, at times, tried to clean up the outside or um, they try to work on certain things, but that's not going to help what's going on in the heart. Now, sometimes, as I said, we have to be very much aware of this, that the outside can be an indicator of what's on the inside. But the truth is also that Jesus said that what's on the outside is not what defiles you. It's what's on the inside. And you're responsible for the inside not me. Now, another, another thing in this list here is godliness. And virtue and godliness run on the same track. But what virtue does is to add another dynamic to it. Virtue is insistent godliness. Virtue insists on what's doing right and what is right, and it's the courage to stand up for what it's right. Now, I think that the Brian Baptist Church and others like us are in a position that we've never been in before. You know, we've always been able to maintain our beliefs and our practices from the safety of the inside of these walls. So I'm able to stand here and preach just about anything that I want to preach and say anything that I want to say. But a few years ago, the government started to interfere and they said, well, churches can't do this. You can't stand in the pulpit. You can't endorse a political candidate. Churches can't pass out any literature for candidates. You can't encourage people to vote for one candidate over another. And that didn't really bother me too bad because I don't like any of them anyway. So it didn't matter too much to me. But then the government sought a way to enforce their mandate 
And so what they threatened to do, they said, well, what we'll do if you try to do this is we're going to revoke your 501c3 status. Now, you might not even understand what that is, so let me just give you the short version of that. The 501c3 is the code that says that, well, the church is exempt from certain income, uh, certain property taxes and things like that, and uh, uh, because we're a nonprofit organization. And it says that because we are a nonprofit, that you can take your tithes and offerings and use them as a deduction on your income taxes. So what the government said was, well, we're going to revoke that 501c3 status if you don't do what we tell you to do. And the church, or rather the the government, has found a way to get an inroad. Well, what they've done uh, since then is to increase that control, and they're now seeking other avenues to get at the church. And so when the Supreme Court passed its decision on homosexual marriage and elevated that to a human rights issue, that became another fast way of controlling the pulpit. You see, in this, in this question, morality has been pushed out of this equation, and now dealing with homosexuals is no longer a moral question, it's a human rights issue. And so human rights means that we no longer, or it no longer, is for religion to decide. And so if we use our building to speak against homosexuality and homosexual marriages, and what we're doing is we're fostering hate speech. And so we'll be guilty of hate crimes. Now, according to the government, that's all right if we're a mosque. It's all right if we're planning a terrorist attack. But what we can't do, it's not okay if we are Christians who are trying to teach morality. That's wrong, they say. So it's going to come to the place that the government may very well decide that they'll take our building because of what we preach, and they may root us out of here. And we're going to have to make a stand. That either we're going to have the courage to choose right over wrong, or we're going to choose the wrong and just keep our building. I I could take you back 500 years to England when Parliament passed the Act of Uniformity. And there were many preachers that were thrown out of their pulpits because they would not comply with the government mandate that said that we are going to control the liturgy that you use in your churches. Now, there were many who said that we're not going to do that. And so they were thrown out. Pastors were thrown out of these huge, magnificent, beautiful buildings where they preached. But they were strong, and they weren't going to give in to that. And they said, we're we're not going to do that. And so they chose right over wrong, and they got thrown out of their churches. But then there were others that said, well, we can go along with that. That's okay. We'll accept that. And they stayed in their pulpits. So we're going to have to decide things like this. Do we obey God, or do we obey men? And if the government takes our building, does that mean the church is gone? Oh, the church doesn't need a building to survive. What the church needs to survive is godly men and women. We won't survive without that. And so we have to make a choice. Are we going to do right? Are we going to do wrong? And we should very well be asking ourselves the question. Every one of us should ask ourselves this question. If everybody in this church was just like me, Would this church survive? That's a good question. John Bunyan was forced out of his pulpit in England. Uh, He was actually thrown out before the Act of Uniformity was passed, but he was thrown out by another government act. This act said that you can't gather more than five people in one place and preach to them unless you have government approval. And that got John Bunyan in trouble because it didn't seem like he could preach anywhere without gathering a crowd. People loved to listen to John Bunyan. And so John Bunyan was thrown in prison for 13 years in the Bedford jail 
But that never did stop him from preaching. People gathered outside the windows of the jail cell for 13 years to hear John Bunyan preach from the jail. Oh, he was really a virtuous man. And when you understand uh, what his life was like, that Bunyan had a wife, he had a blind child that desperately needed him, but he chose Christ over his family. And I'm talking about a man who could have been released. All they did was tell him, you stop preaching, you stop gathering crowds, and we'll let you out of jail. And John Bunyan would not do it. And you might not agree with that. You might say, well, no, what he should have done, he should have stopped his preaching, he should have taken care of his wife and his child. And we've certainly been asked this question, I referred to it last week, what do I do if my family's threatened? What, what, would, what would you do if your family's threatened? Well, do you deny Christ? in order to save them? You know, I think Jesus answered that question. The apostles had families. Christian martyrs through the centuries have had families. And both they and their families died. Very cruel, horrible deaths because they added virtue to their faith. And I realize that as I'm standing here tonight, it's much easier for me to talk about this than it is for us to live it. But it's going to come time when this is no longer going to be an abstract that we only talk about, we will be forced to live in the concrete reality of this. And when that time comes, mature Christians are the ones who will find grace to help in the time of need. And I have to be honest with you, that there are many members of Brian Baptist Church that I do not have very much confidence that they will choose virtue. You know why I say that? Because if I have to plead for people to serve Christ in the green tree, then what's going to happen in the dry? Well, you think about, are you having difficulty where you work? Are, are you having mon uh, problems with the mundane difficulties of life? Is it really hard for you to stand for Christ at work? Are you careless about the way that you live? Then what are you going to do when the choice becomes harder? What will you do when the choice becomes your life? your livelihood or your life, what are you going to do then? Well, if you won't do it now, you're not going to do it then. So virtue is missing, maturity is missing, and you're not going to choose right over wrong without virtue. So to our faith, what we should be doing is adding this quality of uprightness, of irreproachable moral excellence. See, virtue is choosing what is right no matter what anybody says no matter who is against you. And here's what we say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And then just to return to John Bunyan for a moment, Bunyan was a Puritan. Puritan comes from the word puritus, the Latin word puritus, it means pure. You ever heard someone made fun of because they are puritanical in their moral values? Have you ever heard that? Well, I would say this, the Puritans first left us that legacy. They were very morally pure people, and if we are called puritanical, what we really ought to do is wear that as a badge of honor. Never be ashamed of virtue. Well, next our text says to add knowledge. To your faith, add virtue, and to virtue, knowledge. So how can we shorten that? What is knowledge? Well, we can give a definition that knowledge is to learn how to live. Learn how to live. You remember this from Hosea, that God said, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Now, we would note that Peter is not speaking of knowledge of Christ because 
knowledge needs to be added to the foundation of faith, and that would be impossible to do that if you didn't know Christ. But let me show you how virtue and knowledge occur in tandem, and how that Peter doesn't mean that, well, what you need to do is get virtue first, and then when you've got virtue, then you can add knowledge to that. Once you've got one, start the other. Now, these are processes that are in progress at the same time. Now, looking at this, knowledge in the verse means correct spiritual insight. The correct spiritual insight, it's based upon the understanding that you have of Scripture. Well, there are many Christians that face moral dilemmas because they can't associate what they do with the principle that's found in Scripture. I ran up against an example of this just a few weeks ago. I'd been teaching on the fruit of the Spirit, and I mentioned that in Galatians chapter 5 that Paul spoke of characteristics of people that are unsaved, and he gave us those characteristics just before he started that list of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. And just previous to that, he gave... Uh, several characteristics, but the first four characteristics of the people that are ungodly were sexual sins. And so he started out this way in Galatians 5.19. He says, now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness. So four sexual sins begin the list of the godless, and that's because Paul ministered in a sexually charged society. The Greeks and the Romans were notorious for all their sexual perversions, uh, especially in places like Corinth. And as America becomes more godless, what do you notice that the sin, the, what sins become more prevalent? Well, they're sexual sins, aren't they? Well, after I spoke about this, there was someone who came to me and asked me about a particular sin. And I'm not going to mention what that sin is. And as a Christian... This person had a sense that the act was wrong, but there really wasn't any conviction about it. Why, why would a person not have any conviction about that? Well, it's because he was without knowledge. There has to be more spiritual insight to correct the problem. Now, it's, it's evident that you can't be virtuous without knowledge. So if this list was given as a list to follow, that everything's in order, what we would probably do is put knowledge in front of virtue. We would say, get your knowledge first, and then you can be virtuous. But then you turn that back around, you find out that it doesn't work, because knowledge without virtue would leave knowledge right where it found it. Knowledge, you hear me? Knowledge without virtue leaves knowledge right where you found it. You don't have anything to do with it. And what you really have to do is to understand that the desire to choose right or wrong is based on what you know. You need to know right and wrong. And so you can't turn around either way. These are things that have to go together. So you verse it again, and there's no chance to be a virtuous pro, uh, person without knowledge. You have to know which things are right and wrong. And this is what our society suffers from in general, is the lack of spiritual insight. And that is because the less that we know the word, the more immoral that we become. I remember when I was in the seventh grade that every morning we would meet in our homeroom class at 8.30 a.m. Every morning started out exactly the same, that the principal would come over the PA and he would recite the pledge to the flag. And everybody in the class would turn to the flag that was up there in the front of the room and we would begin to recite the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag. Right next to that flag, there was a poster with big bold letters at the top of it. And that poster said, The Ten Commandments. You couldn't look at that flag without seeing that poster. I don't know how many of the students actually read what was on it, 
But you couldn't look at that flag without seeing it. It was always a constant presence. Now, thinking back to that time, would you think that there was any correlation between removing those posters? Is there any correlation between that and the poor moral climate and lack of discipline that we find in school today? Would you say there's a correlation between those two? What was really the issue when Judge uh, Roy Moore, who's the Chief Justice of the Alabama Supreme Court, said, well, I'm not going to remove the Ten Commandments from the courtroom? What was the real issue when he decided to do that? Is it because there's something in the Ten Commandments that's harmful? Is there something there that's going to hurt people if they obey them? Well, of course not. The reason they wanted the Ten Commandments taken down is because it's just like the school child who, who looks at those day after day after day. What people do not want to do is to have to stand up against God's morality. They don't have any morality themselves, and so they don't want to be reminded of that every single day. So they say, take those things down. And what happens when you take them down, you get what God said. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. You know, it's amazing that there are some Christians that ask questions like this. What do I have to do to get my kids to turn out right? And they try to seek for things to get their kids to turn out right. So what do they do? They head down to Barnes & Noble, and they get into the child psychology department, and they start looking for books that help their children to turn out right. Years ago, I asked one of the parents here in Berean, uh, I just asked, well, what kind of materials do you use to teach your children at home? And I had in my mind, uh, well, Sunday school materials or something like that, maybe that's what you'd use to teach your children at home. And these parents looked at me kind of puzzled, and they said, I mean, like, what do you mean, teach our children at home? They were doing it, but what do you mean? And they were puzzled by my question, and they just said, we teach them the Bible. What else is there to teach them but the Bible? What is it that ch children really need? They really need the Word of God. Now, when you teach your children the Bible, and they, as they get older and they face these moral dilemmas, then they know what to do with these questions. They, they know what to do when they need to choose right over wrong. They know how to write them, make the right choices. And this, this really, it did used to be the preferred methodology for raising children. I mean, even your, your school books, your primers had school, had memory verses in them, had Bible verses in them, or they had great principles that were drawn from God's Word. But families stopped doing that. Public ed education wouldn't get close to it any longer. Churches stopped doing it. And so what do you expect will become of it? Well, you get exactly what we've got. We've got a horrible moral mess because nobody knows anything more about the Bible. So when faith faced with decisions about right and wrong, the first place that we ought to go is to look for a parallel in the Word of God. You know that there's very few moral choices that you'll face, very, very few. It's a rare thing to face some kind of a moral choice that you don't find an answer for in the Bible. But sometimes those answers seem to be a little bit obscure to us, and so we face these different gray areas that we don't really know the answer to. So what do you do then? I mean, what do you do if you feel like you can't find an answer in the Bible? Well, I think the next best thing that you do is that you try to find somebody to ask. You, you go to someone who has more experience than you have, that you go to someone who's been where you've been, somebody who's more mature than you are, that's in a different stage of growth, that's beyond where you are, and ask that person 
what you should do. Now, that, that doesn't mean that you get advice from someone who has more experience sinning than you do. No, I've run into that before. I once knew someone who was preparing to write a book on marriage and on divorce and on finances. And this person who was going to write the book had had numerous affairs, had been divorced, and had made a mess of his finances. And so I asked him, I said, how are you going to write a book on marriage, divorce, and finances? And he said, well, I have experience. I have experience. Well, is that the kind of person that you want to go to? You want to go to somebody like that? Uh, I think you'd rather go to a person uh, and you'd ask them not what did you do wrong, but what did you do right? Find somebody who's been there, somebody who's been tempted by these things, someone who's overcome those things, has been victorious in them, and ask them, what did you do right? And so you need to go to a, a good Christian and ask them to help you, see what they did. So you don't go to the messed up Christian and Unless you're going to do it for this, you go and see what did they do and stay as far away as, far away from it as you can to keep from getting messed up yourself. What is it that made them such miserable excuses? So this is really the point that I want to get you to, across to you tonight on these two things. These are two of the seven graces that Peter says that we are to add to our faith. And I'm going to stop with that one because the next one that we want to look at is going to require a little bit more time and we do need to spend some time with it. And so when you get to these graces that Peter mentions here, and they're increasing in your life, that means that you are in the process of growth. These are things that are going to show outwardly. Your light is going to shine brighter and brighter. I mean, it's just like turning up the wick on a lantern, that the more that you add these things, the more that they're growing, the greater the light is going to shine. I know that there are many of you that work in places where they tell you, you can't share your faith here. And they'll tell you, you can't talk to people about what you believe and about the Lord here. Don't do that here. But that doesn't mean that all is lost because you can't do it in the workplace. You see, you can shine a light for Jesus without ever saying a word to anybody, without even witnessing to them, because you can witness to them with your life. And if they won't let you speak the word, then you need to have a life that shows that you really do believe something, that you have something in Jesus Christ. So you might not be able to speak your faith, but you can certainly model your faith. And when you add these graces, your light shines brighter. And at some point, someone is going to come to you, maybe after work or maybe at lunchtime, and they're going to say, what is it that you have? What is it that makes you different? And you'll find this to be true. I've seen it happen so many times that if you live your Christian life, who is the person that gets approached and asked when they've got a problem in their life? Do they go to the other people at work who has also have problems and nobody seems to be able to solve them? Or do they go to the Christian who models something completely different from what they are? What is that that brings peace to your life? What makes you different? And you can certainly model your life for Christ, even if you can't speak of Him. Now, people notice this. And when their lives go bad, they look for people who've got something right. I've seen it happen many times. In Numbers 32, 23, the Bible says there, be sure your sin will find you out. And I think that we could say just the opposite of that. That be sure your faith will find you out. Because if you live for Christ, if your faith shines, then other people are going to see it. And they'll approach that and they'll see that light and they'll want to come to that light. 
So be sure your faith finds you out. Live for Jesus and your faith will be known. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you. We thank you so much for your word and we thank you for Jesus Christ. And I ask you, Lord, that you would help us as your people, that we would shine a light for you, that we would be very careful about being virtuous in our lives and just really standing up for what is right no matter who says that we shouldn't, no matter the opposition that we face, no matter where it is at work or or schools or wherever we might be, that we stand up for the faith of Jesus Christ that we believe. Lord, we just pray that you'd help our people to do that. And, And then, Lord, we might also in that process be thinking about knowledge, learning how to apply the Word of God to all the daily circumstances that we encounter. Help us, Lord, and give us uh, the knowledge that we need, the virtue that we need to serve you in the way that you'd have us to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church. 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.